Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Magnify, a podcast dedicated to equipping Christians with biblical and theological truths through the lens of apologetics so that we can magnify Jesus Christ in our daily lives. I'm your host, Justin Begley, and I'm so grateful that you decided to join in with us today as we begin a new series, In Defense of Christianity. Hello again, listeners. Again, my name is Justin Begley, and I am the host of Magnify. As mentioned, we are back this week to begin a new series, In Defense of Christianity, where we will be walking through some critical arguments and evidence that points to the existence of God and the truth of the Christian faith. This is our first episode in quite a while. I took a break from creating new episodes during the spring semester to catch up on some other responsibilities that I had going on in my life. But my hope and prayer going forward is that I will be able to continue to release new content bi-weekly going forward, God willing. How many of you have heard the objection, I don't believe in God because there is no evidence for his existence? Or how about, I don't believe in God because I believe in science, and science is just incompatible with the existence of God? Or in other words, I don't believe in God because science has disproved God's existence. How should Christians respond to this common objection from skeptics? Has science really disproved the existence of God? Is there really no evidence for God's existence? Is there no evidential reason to believe in God? Interestingly, these objections often have to do with the cause of the beginning of the universe. Now, this isn't always the case because a lot of skeptics will point to the perceived impossibility of miracles and the resurrection as evidence that the Christian God doesn't exist. But for the sake of brevity today, we will primarily be discussing the the origins of the universe today and leave the discussion of miracles and the resurrection for a future episode. Now, if you remember our discussion in the previous episode of Magnify, I listed four questions that every worldview must answer if it is to defend itself as true. And these are questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Now, recall that these questions must be answered in such a way that the facts asserted correspond with the facts of reality and cohere in narrative when all the assertions are brought together. And those answering the questions need to show that what they believe is true in a way that is logically consistent, empirically adequate, and experientially relevant. Now today, as I mentioned, we're going to try to answer the first question, origin. Where do we come from? How did we come into existence? Let's take a look at scripture first, just to find our base. What is, the, what is it that the Christian believes? Where did we come from? How are we made? What is our origin? Let's start on page one of the Bible, Genesis chapter one. Starting in verse one, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. 
And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered at one, at one, to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and gathered the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to the various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give them light on the earth to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So from the start of the Bible, God is very clear that he is the creator of the heavens and the earth and everything in the world. And he even created the light and separated the light and dark into day and night. And God created the people that occupy the earth. He is the eternal, all-powerful creator. Scripture makes that extremely clear. And there is even evidential support for this truth outside of Scripture that we will talk about throughout this episode. Now in a second, I'm going to briefly introduce and explain three arguments that point to the existence of God, particularly as the cause of the existence of the universe, as the cause of our origins. These arguments are actually deductive in nature, which means that if the premises are actually true, and I'll try to show that they are, then the conclusion will simply fall out from the premises and the conclusion will be valid. Now, I I didn't come up with these arguments on my own. These are not from me. They're not of my creation. These arguments have been 
expertly developed by theists and Christian philosophers and apologists over several decades and centuries, people that are way smarter than I am. I'm merely going to try to communicate to them, communicate them to you in an understandable way so that I can help equip you to engage the unbelieving culture that we live in to, and uh, and allow you to uh, give it reasons for the hope that you have, as First Peter 3.15 says to us. But before I get into the arguments, I want to kind of calm all of my Christian listeners a little bit. I think that Christians, and, and I and I truly say this in, in as much love as possible, have a tendency to run away from these types of conversations. It seems to me that a lot of Christians are scared to engage with scientists and naturalists because maybe kind of deep down in some ways, Christians are afraid that their faith will be shaken or, or that they will come out of a conversation with an atheist and no longer think that it's reasonable to believe in God. I remember talking with a Christian friend of mine a few months ago that told me, my pastor told me not to read Sam Harris's book, Letter to a Christian Nation, because I probably would find it impossible to believe in God after I finished it. What? No, that is not how we should act as Christians. We absolutely should be engaging with the ideas of atheists and reading their books and understanding their arguments. How else are you going to understand what they believe and combat their ideas? We have to engage them if we're if we are to present a comprehensive argument for the Christian faith. William Lane Craig, probably one of the most prominent and brilliant Christian philosophers today, has been pointing out that there seems to be some sort of renaissance in Christian philosophy and apologetics over the past couple of, de- of decades. Now, Christian uh, scholars have been prolifically producing scholarship that will influence the debate in favor of theism because believing in God, as it turns out, is really the most reasonable thing you can do. Blaise Pascal, a 17th century French math- mathematician, physicist, inventor, philosopher, and theologian, said, In faith, there is enough light for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those who don't. And I think what Pascal is is saying is that God gives us sufficient evidence to believe he exists without giving us so much evidence that we are compelled to believe in him. God wants us to freely accept his grace out of love for him, compulsion to believe because he gives us way too much evidence uh, of his existence. That's not love. That's not what he, that's not relational love. It's compulsion, belief by force. And so I think it's the job of every believer to familiarize themselves with, a, with, opposing, with opposing worldviews, including atheism, and also keep up to date with Christian scholarship, which, if you haven't been paying attention to it, has been actively refuting the beliefs of atheists and other worldviews for decades and centuries and showing that Christianity is, in fact, the only true religion and worldview. Now, before I get into the arguments for the existence of God and and his role as creator of the universe, I want to just give you something to think about. This is a quote from a book called The Devil's Delusion, Atheism and Its Scientific Pretensions. And it's by a a man uh, named Dr. David Berlinski, who's a professor of philosophy and mathematics at a number of universities over his career, including Stanford, Rutgers, and the University of Paris, which I won't try to pronounce in French. But he's a self-avowed skeptic of intelligent design. So just listen to what he has to say, though. So Dr. Blinsky says, Has anyone provided proof of God's in existence? Not even close. 
Has quantum cosmology explained the emergence of the universe or why it is here? Not even close. Have our sciences explained why our universe seems to be fine-tuned to allow for the existence of life? Not even close. Are physicists and biologists willing to believe in anything so long as it is not religious thought? Close enough. Has rationalism and moral thought provided us with an understanding of what is good, what is right, and what is moral? Not close enough. Has secularism in the, tw- in the terrible 20th century been a force for good? Not even close to being close. Is there a narrow and oppressive orthodoxy in, in the sciences? Close enough. Does anything in the sciences or their philosophy justify the claim that religious belief is irrational? Not even in the ballpark. Is scientific atheism a frivolous exercise in intellectual contempt? Dead on. Now again, this is a skeptic of intelligent design, saying that atheism has not even come close to disproving the existence of God. So don't be afraid of these types of conversations with skeptics and and their ideas. They have nothing over the truth of God as revealed by nature, through the scriptures, and through Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's get into some of these arguments for the existence of God. The first argument we're going to discuss is the argument from contingency. Now, before I introduce the argument, let's define what it means for something to be contingent. So when it's said that something is contingent, it implies implies that that thing does not exist by necessity and is not dependent on something else, some uh, cause of its existence, if you will. Now, this is in contrast to something that exists by necessity, which implies that the thing does not depend on something else and is thus uncaused. So with that definition in mind, let us take a look at the argument. So here it is. One, every existing thing has an explanation of its existence. The explanation either can be in the necessity of its own nature, in other words, it exists necessarily, or in an external cause, or in other words, it exists contingently. Number two, if the universe has an explanation of its its existence, that explanation is God. Three, the universe is a thing that exists. Four, the universe has an explanation of its existence, which logically follows from premise one and premise three. Five, that explanation is God, which logically follows from premise two and premise four. So again, one, every existing thing has an explanation of its existence, whether it exists necessarily or it exists contingently. Two, If the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God. Three, the universe is a thing that exists. Four, the universe has an explanation of its existence. And five, that explanation is God. Let's take a deeper look at at premise one. So premise one is actually a derivative of uh, what's called the principle of sufficient reason, which says that everything that exists must have an explanation for why it exists either in the object's necessity or contingency. So God, for instance, is a necessary being. He exists by the necessity of his own nature, and his existence does not depend on anything else. He has always existed in eternity. We can find this truth in Scripture. Consider Isaiah 57, 15, which says, For this is what the high and exalted one who lives forever whose name is holy, says, I dwell in a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You see it, it says, who lives forever. I dwell in a high and holy place. 
Other translations of, of forever might say inhabits eternity. So God has lived forever because he exists in necessity of his own nature. He is not contingent on any other thing. We can find the same idea in Psalm 90 verse 2, which says, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So God has existed from everlasting to everlasting. He's a necessary being and is contingent on nothing else. So interestingly, the psalmist also points to the contingency of creation in this verse, the mountains, the earth, and the world, all being, as it says, birthed by God or created by God, as the psalmist really quite beautifully describes. So the mountains, earth, people, and all other things in existence that are created things are contingent and specifically contingent on God, the necessary being for their existence. So it seems to me that premise one is actually really quite plausible and one that probably many atheists and Christians can agree on. Things exist either by contingency or necessarily, and they have an explanation for their existence. So what does premise two say? Well, premise two says that if the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God. And I think that premise two is also really, really quite plausible. Now, if the universe does in fact have, have an explanation of its existence, then the explanation has to be something that is timeless, spaceless, immaterial, and extremely powerful. In other words, that explanation must transcend the universe itself. Now, the cause that created time and space must itself be timeless and spaceless. It seems to me that God is the only being that can actually fulfill these required characteristics. Interestingly, uh, William Lane Craig points out that premise two is the logical equivalent to a similar premise that atheists often assert. Now, the atheists will often argue, if God does not exist, then the universe has no explanation of its existence. This was popularly argued in the, in the 20th century by 20th century atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell, who said the universe is just there and that's all. In other words, there is no explanation for the existence of the universe. But this argument is actually the negation of premise two of the contingency argument, which is, by the laws of logic, logically equivalent to the premise. So if we kind of formulate in more simple logic terms, we say, P implies Q is, in, is equivalent to not P implies not Q. And this is exactly what atheists like Bertrand Russell argue, which is to say that the atheist actually admits that premise 2 is true. So some skeptics still may, though, uh, deny our assumption that the universe is caused. But why? Well, the skeptic may say that the universe is uncaused and exists by its own necessity. To be honest, this is a very controversial position, one that requires proof from the skeptic. So in this case, the skeptic carries the burden of proof, not the atheist. And we'll talk about why um, the universe existing by necessity and uncaused is problematic in a later argument. Now let's turn to premise three. I think that premise three is rather uncontroversial. I mean, the universe clearly exists. I don't think most deny that. Because to deny premise three, well, we basically have to subscribe to the unverifiable assertions of what's called metaphysical solipsism, um, which bases its belief on subjective idealism and posits that the self is the only thing that actually exists in reality. 
All other realities, they say, including the external world and other people, are merely representations of the self and have no existence that is independent in and of itself. So I think it's probably safe to say that the majority of people do not subscribe to the beliefs of metaphysical solipsism. Um, Maybe some do, but aside from those beliefs, I think that premise three seems to be uh, really quite plausible. The universe is a thing that exists. Now, if we accept premises one and three, and I think I have provided pretty sufficient justification to accept the premises, premise four, uh, that the universe has an explanation of its existence, logically follows. So premise one says, every existing thing has an explanation of its existence, either by necessity or contingency. And three says, the universe is an existing thing. So it follows, premise four, that the universe, which is an existing thing, has a cause and an explanation for the cause. So then finally, we turn to five, which follows logically from premises two and four, where premise two says that if the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God. And premise four says the universe has an explanation of its existence. So from those two things, it logically follows that the explanation of the existence of the universe is in fact God. So I think that this is a really strong argument for the existence of God that's deductive in nature, so the, so the conclusion falls out of the premises, and I think it has strong premises that can be easily defended. Now, some skeptics may still say, who caused God? Well, this is when the Christian, or even the theist, can explain that God is in fact uncaused. In other words, he is the uncaused first cause. Now, as I mentioned earlier, God exists by the necessity of his own nature, meaning he uh, is not contingent on the existence of another thing, so he is uncreated. In fact, it is actually because uh, that he is exists by the necessity of his own nature that it is impossible for him not to exist. The late theologian J.I. Packer, in his book Concise Theology, said this, Children sometimes ask, Who made God? Well, the clearest answer is that God never needed to be made because he was always there. He exists in a different way from us. We, his creatures, exist in a dependent, derived, finite, fragile way, but our maker exists in an eternal, self-sustaining, necessary way. Necessary, that is, in the sense that God does not have it in him to go out of existence, just as we do not have it in us to live forever. We necessarily age and die because it's It is our present nature to do that. God necessarily continues forever unchanged because it is his eternal nature to do that. This is one of the many contrasts between creature and creator. So again, I think that this argument from contingency is a really solid argument for the existence of God. Now let's turn to the second argument. Uh, I want to touch on this argument... um, called the Kalam Cosmological Argument. It's probably one of the more popular arguments today, and it was actually originally developed by a 12th century Muslim theologian, Al-Ghazali. And uh, it's kind of been contemporarily popularized by Dr. William Lane Craig. So the Kalam Cosmological Argument goes something like this. One, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Two, the universe began to exist. And three, Therefore, the universe has a cause. And then, 
William Lane Craig also kind of follows up with this conclusion by uh, kind of drawing an implication from the conclusion. And he says uh, that it follows from the argument that this cause of the universe must be a beginningless, uncaused, timeless, spaceless, changeless, immaterial, enormously powerful, personal creator of the universe. So again, the argument is, whatever begins to exist has a cause, the universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. Now there is a very large body of both scientific and philosophical evidence to support each of these three premises. Or rather, the two premises and the conclusion. Um, and also, uh, support to support the corresponding implication regarding the characteristics of the, of the cause that are laid out by Dr. Craig. Now, all of these are outlined by Dr. Craig in his various books, including Reasonable Faith, Christian Truth, and Apologetics, and uh, the Kalam Cosmological Argument. He also has various works, uh, uh, academic works and writings published on his website, reasonablefaith.org. So I would encourage you uh, to go uh, seek out those resources for a more complete set of evidence, but um, I will cover some of it here today on the podcast. All right, let's take a look at premise one. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Now, this seems like a rather uncontroversial uh, premise. Things don't just randomly pop into existence on their own. Uncaused existence contradicts our experience of reality. And so, for instance, if you were sitting in your living room, you aren't typically worrying if an elephant is just going to pop into existence and start destroying your house because it's too big and it can't fit. If that could happen, we'd have a real problem on our hands. But uh, So even based on our experience of reality, premise one seems to be pretty plausible. But still, some atheists may say, Premise one is only true for things in the universe, but is not true of the universe itself. But I think this completely misunderstands the first premise. Premise one doesn't state a physical law, but rather a metaphysical principle. That is to say, as Dr. Craig puts it, premise one is a principle that is true of being as being. Namely, being cannot come from non-being. Thus, the principle applies to all of reality and this is my input, all of reality includes the existence of the universe. Now, what about premise two? Premise two says the universe began to exist. This seems to be, I think, the more controversial premise, although it depends on kind of who you're talking to, but many atheists and agnostics alike will deny that the universe, in fact, came into existence. And one popular argument against premise two is that the universe has just always existed. In fact, in scientific circles, prior to the Big Bang model of the beginning of the universe from physicists Friedman and Lemaitre, and even after the model was kind of popularized, scientists almost universally believed that the universe always existed. That is, that it is eternal. And we're going to return to the Big Bang model a little later. So the question to the atheist is, can the universe really be eternal? The answer is no, and, and here's why. When someone says that the universe has existed eternally, they are assuming the possibility of the existence of an actual infinite. Now, an actual, an actual infinite is a collection or a set that has an actually infinite number of members in it. 
i.e. the number of elements in the collection exceeds any natural number that one can think of. Now note that this is not the same thing as a potential infinite, which is a collection that is uh, finite at every single point within that set, but that grows towards infinity in the limit. So for those that have taken calculus, you may understand this from actually taking limits as, let's say, x approaches infinity. But potential infinites exist. Things do tend sometimes towards infinity, especially mathematics. But an actual infinite does not exist. Now, this can easily be seen with with some basic algebra. And we're going to provide a, a quick kind of, you could call it a proof, that actual infinites do not exist. So suppose we take a set of natural numbers from 1 to infinity. Here we're assuming that an actual infinite actually does exist. Now let's remove all of the odd numbers from that set. Now we have a set of even numbers from 2 to infinity. So if we subtract the set of an infinite number of odd numbers from a set of an infinite number of all the natural numbers, we're left with a set of an infinite number of even numbers. So here, infinity minus infinity equals infinity. Okay, that's relatively straightforward. Now let's consider the same original set that we started with uh, of numbers from 1 to infinity. This time, let's subtract every natural number greater than 3. So in other words, we're removing all numbers from 4 to infinity. This is an infinite number of numbers. So thus, we have now infinity minus infinity equals 3. But before we had infinity minus infinity equals infinity. So we have a contradiction. Infinity minus infinity cannot at the same time equal 3 and infinity. That's a contradiction. So therefore, an actual infinite cannot possibly exist. If you want actually a more, a little bit more interesting example of the silliness of an actual infinity, take a look at Hilbert's Hotel, which is kind of a thought experiment named after the German mathematician David Hilbert, which shows that, uh, that there is an inherent contradiction that arises if an actual infinite does in fact exist. So since an actual infinite cannot exist, the universe cannot possibly be eternal. It cannot possibly exist in infinity. In fact, Dr. Craig formulates the argument against an, uh, an internally existing universe as follows. He says, 1. An actual infinite number of things cannot exist. 2. A beginningless series of past events involves an actual infinite number of things. And 3. Therefore, a beginningless series of past events cannot exist. So in summary, there's uh, of his argument here, the universe cannot be eternal because that would imply that there is in fact an infinite series of past events that has no beginning and has no end, which is just impossible. If it were possible, then there's no explanation as to how or why we have arrived at this very moment in time because a universe that has existed in an infinity of a past time, as well as an infinity of future time, would never reach the moment of time that we're currently in. Therefore, purely on philosophical grounds, it is very plausible that premise two of the Kalam argument holds, that the universe began to exist. Now, what about the scientific evidence for the beginning of the universe? Well, Christians have always believed in a beginning of the universe. We read Genesis 1 just a little bit ago, which says, in the beginning, implying that there actually was a beginning of the universe. But as I mentioned earlier, scientists have not always agreed on this point, 
In fact, looking at the history of the 20th century, it seems that following the, the introduction of the Big Bang model, which posited a beginning of the universe, physicists spent the better portion of the 1900s trying to come up with alternatives to the Big Bang model. All of these alternatives, including the steady-state theory from physicist Fred Hoyle, oscillating models of the universe, which were discredited by physicists Roger Penrose and Stephen Hawking, vacuum fluctuation models from quantum physics, the chaotic inflationary model from Russian cosmologist Andrei Lind, and models using the quantum theory of gravity from Alexander Vilenkin and Arvind Bord, as well as Stephen Hawking and James Hartle, have all failed to do away with the singularity that is found in the Big Bang model. Now, each of the alternatives mentioned either were debunked by other physicists, such as the oscillating models and the chaotic inflationary model from Lind, or they merely come to the same conclusion that the Big Bang model does, that there was, in fact, an initial singularity, an initial point in time that the universe began to exist, and then start rapidly expanding. Even modern string theory, or M-theory, it has also uh, come to be called, which has been kind of used by physicists to remove the need for the singularity, has been unsuccessful in doing so. Now, why is that the case? Well, string theory is still relatively young in development, and it's so complicated that its equations really haven't been fully developed yet, really fully derived and solved uh, yet. So one of the, the more popular models from string theory is what's called the cyclic ekpyrotic model. And this model... Um, is incredibly speculative and basically amounts to the oscillating model, uh, but in five dimensions. So it seems to me that that Genesis 1 actually gets it correct, further affirming premise 2 that the universe did in fact have a beginning. And thus it follows the conclusion of the Kalam argument that the universe had a cause. Because, as I said before, this is a deductive argument. So if premise 1 and premise 2 are true, then the conclusion is also true. And so the universe had a cause. And as Dr. Craig uh, says, this cause must be beginningless because it must exist prior to the beginning of the universe, uncaused because it must exist by the necessity of its own nature, timeless because it must transcend time in order to create time, spaceless because it must transcend space in order to create space, changeless because it's timeless, immaterial because it's changeless, unlike material which constantly changes even if only on the molecular and atomic level. It must be enormously powerful because only an omnipotent being could create such a universe. And it must be a personal creator of the universe because it is timeless, immaterial, and a freely operating agent that creates out of its own free desire to create and know its creation. And the only candidate that fits this description is God. Wow, I apologize. That was kind of a mouthful. Um, But the Kalam cosmological argument is an extremely powerful argument for the existence of God. Now, at this point, we're running a little bit long. So I think I will just quickly cover the third argument and then wrap everything up with one final discussion point. I'm not going to do this argument justice because I'm on such a, uh, a time constraint here, but let's briefly introduce this argument. The third and final argument is, is what's called the teleological argument for the existence of God, and it goes like this. One, the fine-tuning of the initial conditions of the universe is due to either law, chance, or design. Two, 
the fine-tuning is not due to law or chance. Three, therefore, fine-tuning is due to design. Now, this is a really simple but also very powerful argument for the existence of God. What do we mean by fine-tuning? Well, when we talk about fine-tuning, we typically refer to the two types of initial conditions of the universe, that being the constants of nature, such as the fixed gravitational constant and, and, and others, and also um, the arbitrary quantities, also known as the boundary conditions. Now, these are things like the entropy of the universe, which according to the second law of thermodynamics is always increasing as energy is diffused and the, the, the universe kind of comes into equilibrium. And another example of these arbitrary quantities is the, uh, the ratio between matter and antimatter in the universe. Now, both of these, uh, the entropy and the ratio of antimatter and matter, just kind of existed at the beginning of the universe. No physical laws require them to be this way since the constants don't seem to be governed by any sort of physical laws, uh, and it's, it's really unlikely that they occurred by chance. Now, scientists have discovered that these constants and quantities have to be so extremely fine-tuned to such precision in order for the universe to permit the evolution and existence of intelligent life. Now, if the constants were even slightly altered, the existence of sustainable life would be impossible. British physicist PCW Davies estimated that if you were to alter the force of gravity, or the weak force, let's say, in the atomic nucleus, by only one part in 10 to the 100th power, the universe would not be life-permitting. Dr. Craig puts it this way. To get an idea of how small a probability of 1 over 10 to 100 is, consider an incomprehensibly smaller probability 1 over 10 to the 60th power. This is the probability of randomly throwing a dart across the universe 20 billion light years away and hitting a target one inch in diameter. For the universe to be life permitting, the target was hit even though the probability of hitting it was 1 over 10 to the 100th power. And that is just for one quantity of either gravity or the weak force. So the chance of achieving this universe is even more impossibly unprobabilistic when you consider all of the constants and quantities that are required to allow for a life-permitting universe. And yet, we do in fact live in a universe that permits life. So I think it's very plausible that our universe is not simply life-permitting by chance alone. It had to have been by design, especially because to the argument from, from physical laws, there's no physical laws that, that make these constants and arbitrary quantities uh, be the way they are. They were designed this way. Now, unfortunately, we're kind of running out of time here, so I can't go further into this argument. I, like I said, I'm not doing it justice, but I will mention one of the more popular objections to the teleological argument today. Uh, this objection stems from what's called the multiverse hypothesis. Now, according to uh, the many worlds hypothesis or the multi-world the, the multi hypothesis or the multiverse hypothesis, whatever you want to call it, our universe is just one of an infinite number of existing universes that exist parallel to one another. Now, the notion that there is an infinite number of universes ensures that every possible state of the world exists and that since there is an infinite number of universes, our universe is the one that is life-permitting and was uh, actually just able to appear by chance alone uh, since our universe clearly is life-permitting. 
it's also postulated in in this in the multiverse hypothesis that the universes are all randomly ordered with respect to their constants and quantities because otherwise they might all just be the same. So these uh, two necessities ensure that every combination of constants and quantities occur somewhere in the multiverse, that being in our universe, since we have a universe that is in fact life-permitting. I like how Dr. Craig puts it. He says that so many sober scientists have accepted or proposed such a fantastic hypothesis suggests that the creation hypothesis is incredibly strong. And I, I tend to agree. I want to point out two quick errors in the, in the multiverse hypothesis before we move on. So the first is that proponents of the multiverse hypothesis seem to be in violation of what's called Occam's razor, which says that we ought not to multiply causes beyond what is necessary to explain the effect. Now, unless scientists find a simple mechanism that generates all of these universes, which they haven't found, then they won't be able to posit an explanation as simple as, the as theism. But in reality, there really is no explanation that is as simple and as in line with Occam's razor as divine creation. Secondly, there is simply no evidence for the existence of a multiverse. Perhaps, uh, you know, if you live in the DC Comics universe, you can just open up a portal to jump to a different universe. But in reality, there's no real scientific evidence that a multiverse exists. The only possible evidence that a multiverse exists is the fine-tuning of the universe. But this actually equally points to an intelligent designer, as, as we've been discussing. And, there, you know, there's no body of independent evidence for a multiverse. But there is a huge body of independent evidence for the existence of God as we've tried to kind of present uh, some of in this episode. Again, it seems to me that premise two of the teleological argument is very plausible, and that this argument uh, is, is a very powerful uh, argument in, well, arguing for the existence of God. So altogether, these three arguments from contingency, the Kalam argument, and the teleological argument are powerful arguments for the existence of a God who created the universe and everything in it. As John 1 verse 3 says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And we can rejoice in, in, in the Lord for, for what he has made, for making this beautiful world, this beautiful universe, and for giving us life. Psalm 96 uh, verses 11 through 13 say, let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound, and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord. Conversations and debates about the origin of the universe and everything that is in it should not be shied away from. Christians can engage in these conversations and debates because the Christian faith and worldview is the only one that can answer the question of origin in a way that corresponds with reality, coheres in narrative, and that is logically consistent, empirically adequate, and experientially relevant. And even more importantly, by presenting this case to atheists and other skeptics, we can start to remove the intellectual barriers that stop them from coming to Christ. So let's magnify Jesus in this effort of presenting an apologetic, presenting reasons for the hope that we have in Jesus. Because, as I said before, believing and the Christian God is the most reasonable thing that we can do. So let's help in removing those intellectual barriers from atheists and agnostics and skeptics to lead them to the cross. 
So one thing uh, before we end, kind of a special little note for my Young Earth creationist listeners. You're probably wondering why I didn't comment on the age of the Earth and on evolution. Now, this is in part by design, but also kind of, you know, for time constraints as well. But I want to maybe help you think about some things before we go, if I may. It isn't a secret that biblical scripture in general is not a book of one genre, but changes kind of based on the writer or the message uh, that the writer is trying to convey. Now, these genres include narrative, poetry, wisdom, prophecy, gospels, epistles, and apocalyptic literature. All genres use different styles of writing and and uses uh, different types of language and, and linguistic devices to convey the message. For example, consider Genesis 2 verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now this seems to me to be kind of an anthropomorphic uh, figurative description of the creation of man to teach that the humans are part of creation and that they have a very special relationship with God. This probably isn't meant to be taken literally, like God literally picked up dirt and formed Adam. Now, with that said, I think it's important to take a step back and look at the genre that Genesis was was written in when it it describes the beginning of the universe and what the writer, namely Moses, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was trying to teach to the Jewish people. I also think it's extremely important to pay really close attention to the word choices of the author. Consider Genesis 1 and 2, uh, the seven-day creation story. Genesis says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, some Christians say that this occurred on day one of a sixth earthly day time frame. But if you look at the text really carefully, there's not really any evidence that it is a part of day one. Day and night were created on day one when God created light. The scripture is pretty clear about that. But the scripture does not necessarily group the creation of the heavens and the earth in with the creation of light on day one. So I don't think that scripture prohibits the notion that the earth is 4.5 billion years old, as scientists, as, as science and, and scientists suggest. I don't think that science contradicts the Bible here. Also, um, I think it's important to quickly point out, these six days are not quite as simple as they seem. According to John Lennox, who's a triple PhD in mathematics, theology, and, a, and the philosophy of science, and a professor at Oxford University, kind of points out that the word day um, has four meanings in the text of Genesis. So the first is in, appears in Genesis 1-5. It says, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Now this is clearly not referring to a 24-hour uh, hour day, um, but is actually less than 24 hours because he's just describing, uh, the author is, the time of light. John Lennox says, the very first use of the word is to draw attention to the ambiguity of language. And so what is the second use uh, of of the word? Um, It it actually comes a little bit later in the the same verse, in verse 5, which says, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now this is the Hebrew way of kind of describing a 24-hour day period. The third meaning appears in Genesis 2, which says, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. But there is no mention here of an evening or morning on day seven because, in fact, many theologians believe that God's rest is still going on. In other words, we are currently living on the seventh day, and God's kind of doing other things in the midst of that last day of the creation narrative. 
Now, I, I don't necessarily subscribe to this idea, but it really does kind of make you take a step back and think and really consider the scripture that you're reading. But there's more. Look at Genesis 2.4. It says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day the Lord God made earth and heaven. Do we know what day that was? It's kind of hard to discern. Interestingly, the word day here doesn't appear in most English translations, but does appear in the Hebrew because the word day has uh, an indefinite meaning in in the Hebrew. So we need to be careful when reading. We need to pay attention to when the Hebrew has a definite article, but no indefinite article or no article at all. Notice that Genesis 1 uh, does not say the first day, the second day, the third day, and so on. Genesis 1 says day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, and then it says the sixth day and the seventh day. Now, there is no definite article on the first five days, but there is one on the sixth and the seventh day. If the writer wanted to describe the ordering of the days of creation using the standard idea of one earth week, we would expect him to use a definite article on each day, or no article at all, but he doesn't do that. What I'm just trying to show you is that we, we really shouldn't just whip through scripture and become so dogmatic without really thinking long and hard about what scripture is trying to teach. Now, I'm not saying that what I showed you suggests that the earth is 4.5 billion years old or that evolution occurred or that the earth is only 10,000 years old. I'm not saying any of that. Rather, I'm just trying to uh, point out to you that I don't think that scripture and science contradict each other, at least not in this case. Now, sometimes science is in contradiction with scripture, as I showed earlier by introducing kind of failed models that attempted to deposit an eternally existing universe, for instance. But in the case of an old earth and evolution, though it depends on kind of how we define evolution, I don't think that belief here contradicts belief in the inerrancy of scripture. Now, I hope and pray that this uh, episode for everybody was helpful uh, in either kind of affirming your faith in God uh, and that it is in fact reasonable, or um, I hope it was helpful in sorting through your beliefs about God and science and philosophy. Or if you're an unbeliever, I, I pray that um, maybe it it made you think a little bit more that uh, maybe God really is there. Maybe God really does exist. Maybe he does really want to know me. Um, I promise you that, that God is real. He does want to know you. He wants to know his creation. He wants to be in loving relationship with you so much so that he came down, made himself flesh, lived a perfect and sinless life in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and went to the cross to die for your sin, spilling his blood out to cleanse you. If only you would accept the grace that he poured out on you on the cross. And I pray that that also future episodes in the series will be equally as helpful as this one. I hope that we answered uh, well enough the, the question of origins. Um, and, and I pray that, that we would answer the other questions of meaning, morality, and destiny in future episodes, God willing. So stay tuned for the next episode where we will discuss the second question of worldviews, the question of meaning. I'm Justin Begley, and this is Magnify. <laughs>